0: It was a life-changing moment for Kimberly Deer. In 2006, and you may know the story, it's actually in one of our tracks that we give away to people to explain the gospel. So recently I've given it to someone, but this, it's a wonderful story. It's a true story. It was a life-changing moment for Kimberly Deer. In 2006, Kimberly, Kim Deer, from Australia, 21 years old, she's in America, she's a tourist. And she went on a skydiving tour. So she booked in and took a ride with a bunch of other people in a plane. It took off from an airport at St Louis, um, St Louis in Missouri, and they went on this flight. Her instructor—it was a tandem dive. His name was Robert Cook. He's 22 years old. Robert Cook loves skydiving so much so that at uni he had worked out statistically uh, all the chances, all the ways in which you might die skydiving, and you can imagine. The possibilities, and he'd worked out it was a very safe enterprise, a very safe hobby, and so he was committed to this. He loved it. So there's Kimberly Deer, Aussie tourist, 21. The plane takes off from the airport, and not long later, the one of the engines on the plane caught fire. And what happened next? Kimberly's parents described only as an act of self-sacrificial heroism. Because Robert Cook, then, as the the, the engine's on fire, uh, gently grabs Kimberly, and they were going to be strapped together anyway, and he attaches himself to her, and then gets her to focus on him and not what's happening around, and speaks calmly by saying, the plane is going to crash. And what I want you to do is I want you to make sure that I take the impact. And so he snugly held onto her closely and calmly spoke into her ear, positioning her head next to his head so that her head would not move and wobble. And as they came 16 seconds later, hitting a power lines and a tree, and they ploughed into the ground, the impact of that crash was fully felt on Robert's body and Kimberly survived. Robert Cook did not. He died in that crash along with five other people. Now can you imagine Kimberly and her family every time they see a light plane in the air, every time they see a skydiving advert on the internet, on Facey, can you imagine how that would change her life? As I read the, the articles that describe this moment, her parents are just so grateful still. Kimberly is so grateful still that this, this person who didn't know her decided to take the impact of something that would kill her, and instead, he was killed. He died instead of Kimberly dying. He saved her life. Friends, that illustrates the good news of Jesus that he would go to the cross but you may have heard about at Easter time you know, Christians talk about the cross of Christ Good Friday. The good news is this knowing that we face as we saw in deuteronomy 32, the right justice of God, not just the people that do bad things on the TV, not just the people down the street that annoy us or the ones in our wider family that have hurt us, but I deserve justice. I deserve death forever. But Jesus comes and says, I don't want that for you. I want to save you. I want to rescue you. And he takes the full force of that, of sin and wrath and death on the cross. He dies so that we can live. And not just live now, but live forever. That is the hope, that is the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He takes the full force of sin and wrath, judgment and death, all of it, your blame, your shame, is taken on Jesus' shoulders. I find it interesting when you read Mark's gospel, and we were in John's gospel earlier this year, that when Jesus on the cross, he gets mocked, that's what the cross is. The cross is, the, is it's, well, it's really execution by humiliation. He's totally mocked. And the mocking is, he saved others. He healed others. He helped others, but he won't help himself. He won't come down from the cross. It's an irony in that, isn't there? Because he won't. He doesn't. He stays on the cross to save others. That's the point. He's the one who straps himself in that tandem dive to us and our sin and takes the great swap and he takes the full force and impact of it on that cross. Now why would I lead with that illustration? Why are we starting there? Because that is that kind of life-changing moment Paul is writing to us, we need to make sure we work and what that means for us. Now, just read that verse again with me. It's Philippians 2, verse 12. And he writes this, with the context of all that's gone before, what Christ has done on the cross, that's just in the previous few words, he says this, verse 12, therefore, my beloved, in other words, friends, I love you so much. Church, I love you. I want you to hear this. People I love. As you've always obeyed, that is God, Now, he says, so now, not only in my presence, because Paul loved this church he pastored, but much more in my absence, and here is the key action of the whole passage. Knowing that Christ was strapped to the cross instead of you, instead of me, knowing that he took the full impact of sin and justice and wrath and death forever, he took it for you, knowing that here is what we need to do now for those who want to receive that salvation, work out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, work out what it means. Now, that can throw us a little bit, particularly if you're new to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because we can think and we, we muddle things, I so muddle things up in my own head, you like that? We can think it means, oh, I need to work for my salvation. Like, I need to impress God or be good enough for God that He'll accept me. Friends, that is a common belief. Most of Australia believes that. Do you know this? Talk to your friends and family. The default position of humanity has always been from the beginning, I need to somehow work out or work for my salvation, impress God to get back in the garden. Ever since we decided that we said, yeah, thank you, Lord, for this. uh, Thank you, God, for this wonderful world you created. Really love it. Really enjoying it. Just don't need to talk to you for a while. That was basically what happened in the Garden of Eden. We don't need to trust you. We don't believe you. You don't really love us because we decide what is right and wrong. And ever since we did that, our ancient grandparents, Adam and Eve, did that in the Garden. And ever since we were then out of the garden because we can't be enjoying God's good presence if we're not going to treat his presence as a real relationship, ever since we've been doing that, and we've realized we are really, really in trouble, our world is in trouble, we are not managing well, we've always treated God as someone we've got to kind of get back in the good books with by impressing him. But that's not the good news. That's not good news at all. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. You're not saved by your performance. You're not saved by your record, your history, your record, my records against me. You're saved by grace, totally undeserved favor, totally a gift towards you, that Jesus comes into our world to seek and save the lost, to love them and to die for them. That's the gospel. So when we read this verse, we muddy it up. We mark it up by saying, oh, I've got to work for my salvation. That's why we need to read it again carefully. It's why we need to have our Bibles with us. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, friends, work out what it means to be saved. Like Kimberly Deer, who would from now on reflect, every time she hears a light plane, she would go, I got saved that day. So that every time you think of Jesus, you're not thinking of the God you had to impress. You're thinking of the God who came to to come for you, to love you, as unimpressive as I am. Work out, that's significant. That's wonderful. That's actually amazing. Work out the significance of your salvation. And do it, Paul writes, with fear and trembling again another couple of words it could throw us I, spo- I, spo- I thought i wasn't supposed to fear god but but the context of that's important of course too that phrase fear and trembling is used in in the new testament a few times you can go to um to second corinthians uh, chapter 7 verse 15 and and we see paul uses it there we see he says about titus visiting the church at corinth um we read this in 2 Corinthians 7:15: "His affection for you is even greater. He that is Titus remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Now it can't mean that they were scared of Titus. Ah, it's Titus! Ah! Well, that nightmares! No, it, It's not that. It can't mean. You look at the context, words have meaning in context. We say this all the time here at church, don't we? Like if you were to go to our youth group. Right, And then go home and your grandma's there having a cup of tea and grandma says, hello dear, how was youth group? I'm not trying to um, caricature grandmas everywhere. Maybe your grandma has got a cool voice. Uh, That's my grandma voice. The grandma says, how was youth group? And you say, oh, it was wicked. She goes, what? It was wicked? Words have meaning in context. You know what you mean by wicked and she needs to understand the context of what you mean by that word. Fear and trembling has a context in the Bible. It's used in other places, of course, as well. I mean, Paul himself, if you go back, you're in 2 Corinthians, just go and just go back to 1 Corinthians. And, um, Paul, who we often treat as this kind of hard, you know, hard living, uh, driven person who wants to get the gospel out to the Roman Empire. But look at Paul. He's often someone who wears his heart on his sleeve. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, we see in verse 3, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul knows what it's like to preach to a bunch of people who sometimes don't really want to hear the gospel of grace. He says, I came in fear and trembling. The context is this, friends. To have a fear and trembling is not to be shaking, scared, but it's to have a faith-filled fear and a trembling of trust. It's that kind of Awe struckness that Kimberly Deer had after being saved. It's that kind of sitting in your room, in your bed, in your chair, and just going, My goodness. I'm saved. I'm safe. It's the kind of thing you ponder upon in fear and trembling and say, that is amazing. It makes me speechless. So if I have no words, I have fear and trembling. I have a reverent fear for God and a trembling of trust that says, why would you do that? How could you do that for me? And knowing I would fail you again and again and again, I'd fail you on Sunday and Wednesday and Friday, how could you do that? That's the kind of thing Paul is writing about. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The default position of our world is we need to work for our salvation, but Paul is saying the gospel means, the good news is, you can't work for it, but what you get to do is work out what it means for you now. You get to see it be a life-changing moment for you. And this power of the gospel that changes lives, that saves people, we look at verse 13, the verse that follows. Here is what's even better news. Not just we working it out, what it means, but do you ever struggle working things out? We're all gifted in different ways. I struggle with maths. Here's my confession. Here's my admission. I struggle with maths. I struggle with chemistry, and I originally started out as an ag science student. Words I get, but words when you put them with numbers and stuff, yeah, why do that? Just make some muck of words. We all struggle with things. But it could also be that you struggle working it out. You kind of go, I I can't. Like, I I really struggle to believe that God would just give me this gift of salvation. All I need to do is believe. That's right. I struggle with that. You might struggle with grace. You might struggle with this so much you think, I can't. I I just, I can't. Here's the good news. Verse 13. Love this. Check it out. As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, get this. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one who's actually working in you by his spirit so you can work it out. What I love here is the Greek word for this is enogon. The word works, it's enogon. You never believe what word we get from that, it's energy. God is the energizer. He's the original energizer. He is energizing, he's working in you. So as you're sitting here thinking, okay, Jesus took the full force and impact of sin and death on the cross for me as I try and work that out and I struggle with that. What hope have I got? What help have I got? Because I'm a real struggler on many things. But get this, God is going to work right now. He's working by his spirit. It is God's spirit who breathed these words onto the page. It is God who wants to, he's pleased to, his pleasure is this, for you to understand this, for you to believe it. That's all you've got to do in the end, friends, is believe it. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't pay it back. You can't be good enough for it. In fact, the prerequisite for coming to God is not that you're good, but that you're bad. It's the people who think they're good and they're better than others. They're the ones that Jesus really rails against. They're the ones Jesus got a problem with. But Jesus got no problem coming towards the people that are bad and messed up and with all sorts of baggage and shame and guilt. He comes towards them and says, I love you. I've done everything for you. You still struggle? I'm going to keep doing things for you. It's from grace from beginning to end. And here he is helping us. And as he does that, I want you to know something significant about his grace to us. God gives grace to us in his word. We, we talk about the three habits of grace, the three evidences of grace in our lives. The first grace is, of course, Jesus saves us, and we know this from his word. We get to hear his voice. The second evidence of grace is, the second habit of grace is we get to enjoy as we have his ear in prayer. And the third one is, we get to belong to his body, the church. So I want you to notice this on that third evidence of grace, that third part of God's grace. All the words here, all the action words, the verbs, all those sorts of words, all of them are plural in form. This is not an individual project. Being saved and working it out is not just a me in my own little square box of life, doing my life over here, being groovy and everything, and doesn't relate to how anyone else is going. No, this is actually for us to work out as a church. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I think when you take a person out of relationships, like a church, for example, take a person out of a group, out of relationships, and we actually don't grow. Our growth is stunted as a person. Think about this. If you're going to grow in relationships, you're going to grow as a person, and humans are made for relationships, like we saw in the garden. If you're going to grow, you need other people to grow around. There's a few fundamental ways that works. How do you grow in love of serving others? You're kind of going to be need to be around others, aren't you? If you're going to grow in love, a great way to grow in love is to have other people that you need to love. Now, sometimes we say, but I don't like them. Churches are full of people that we wouldn't normally hang out with. We normally don't enjoy each other's hobbies in every way and don't normally like the people. But Jesus saves and gathers us, so even people we might not necessarily like, we come together, and that's how I learn to love. If you never have to exercise your love muscle of your heart for loving someone else, you won't grow. Your heart won't grow in love. Which also means um, growing together as a church and working at our salvation has implications for a body like us, for a people like us, because it means we also grow in things like Forgiving one another. Why is that helpful? Why do we grow in forgiving one another? Because, friends, what is the gospel about? What is the good news of Jesus? It's about forgiveness. That Jesus takes all our sin and shame and search history and baggage and lies and the lives that we like to lead and hurt other people. When we're wrong, he takes the whole thing so that we can be forgiven by God in new relationship, that is the shape of not just our salvation with him, it's the shape of how we work out our salvation with other people. we said it before and we'll say it again. That means you can't hold on to the gospel and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. You can't hold on to the gospel and a grudge at the same time. Like, I can't, I can't hold on to the gospel and say, I'm so grateful for forgiveness, but I won't forgive you. You can't do that. You see, it's life-changing if you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you realize, oh my goodness, that thing that I would never tell anyone else about, like that stuff in my life that I would never want on the screen right now. I wouldn't want someone to make a YouTube video of my life and put it there for everyone to watch and the number of plays and perhaps people that even subscribe to that stuff. I wouldn't want that, but I tell you what, In Christ, it's forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness, so that we can then relate to others in God's new community, the church, this new humanity, and forgive one another. Which has implications even in this passage, doesn't it? Because we see in the next verse, verse 14, and now this makes sense, Paul is not just like, what's the Philippians' problem? What's their issue? He's not just pointing something out. He's saying, this makes sense now, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why pick on grumbling? Because grumbling, and let me just say, I'm the chief of it. I'm the chief grumbler in the room. Grumbling is often, it's not grasping the gospel of grace. And it certainly, third point, won't lead to rejoicing. You see, what is grumbling? Grumbling is selfish talk. Grumbling is the kind of voice of self-interest that is so loud in my life that it crowds out listening to and loving others. And rather than thanking God and thinking of others I just totally seek my own interests. That's grumbling. No one can help me. No one's, inter- no one's good enough. No one understands me. It just, it just grows. That voice of self-interest just grows until it, it can't even hear any help. It can't even hear someone else helping. Let alone it can't even hear God helping. Now, why does Paul pick up grumbling and use it here about God's people? I want you to follow this because this is why we read Deuteronomy 32. We always have a cross-reference reading of the Old Testament that connects to our passage. In Deuteronomy 32, we saw something about God's people. But I want you to see this. God's people, verse 15 in Philippians, God's people were supposed to be this. God's people, Israel, Old Testament people, God's New Testament people, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. We saw in Deuteronomy 32, God takes this, this, this people and he says to this ragtag bunch of people that Grumbled the whole way out of Egypt, as they're saved out of Egypt. They grumbled the whole way into the promised land, and they grumbled the whole way in. They wanted a king. They didn't want God to be king. They wanted their own king. And then they go through all this stuff, and God gives them grace upon grace upon grace, and they grumble and grumble and grumble. And God keeps saying, You know what? You're my children, and I love you. As ungrateful and grumbling as you are, I just love you. And He just gives them grace upon grace upon grace. you know what happens of course to that people we saw it in the kids talk we saw it in deuteronomy 32 they don't want god's grace they even grumble against god's grace they're supposed to shine as lights in the world but they don't they look just like the world If you want to find grumbling, you can find that anywhere in the world. You can go to a pub. Grumbling's easy. You can go to the workplace. Probably more grumbling in the workplace, I imagine. (laughs) Your own wider family. Grumbling's easy to find. But people who are different, who shine like lights in the world? Why that phrase is used, that was a phrase that's used in Daniel chapter 12. It's meant to be what God's people are like, so different that people would notice, hey, there's something different about you. Like, I've seen what you go through, but there's something significantly different. What is it? Tim Keller tells a story um, about a lady he met at his church. And he says, oh, I, I don't know you, you're new here, yeah, yeah, she's new, you know, how did you come to get here? And she said, "Well, let me tell you a story." And I'm mindful of the clock; I don't want to keep us too long. But I love this story. She says, "I work at a, a pretty uh, important marketing firm in New York, and I was I was really new there. It's my, I, was, I sort of started on probation and an intern type thing. And I started there, and I'm in this this level, this floor where my boss he's in a glass kind of office you can see in, and here I am, all the rest of the plebs. And I'm working there, and I was given a project to work upon." And I worked on this project and I made a massive mistake. And it cost the company millions of dollars. It was a mistake. I just, I missed, um, mistook something for something else and I, my little mistake cost the company millions of dollars. And as soon as I knew that and I saw the, the kind of the internal email threads happening, where's, how's this happen, etc., trying to find the, the blame, I started packing at my desk. And my boss comes out of the office. And uh, as he's coming out of the office, the heads from upstairs have come down through the lift, and they've met him, and they go into his glass office. So I packed up my box and got ready to leave. And then after a while, they had their meeting, and they left the glass office, and my boss comes out and he and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm packing up and going home. And the boss says, no, you're not. I want you to reset your desk up, and I want you to continue on this next project, which he did, because that's what the boss said. Boss goes back into his office and she's working all day like, something's wrong here. This is not right. Something's wrong. So she, she goes and, uh, excuse me, I just, um, I can't put my notice, like, uh, you know and I know I cost this company millions of dollars and why am I still working here? And he said, it's fine, it's fine. Let's go back to work. It's fine. So she goes back to work. At the end of the day, no. Nah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I really need to know. There's something strange that's happened here. I, cost, I should be gone now. You know, uh, it was me making the decision. I should be gone. What happened here? And she persisted. And He says, "All right, uh, come in. Close the door." And everyone else is looking because they can see through the glass office. And he says, "Sit. Take a seat." He says, "I want to explain something to you." He says, um, "I'm a Christian, right, which, which means for me, uh, I know uh, what Jesus has done for me." I know that when I made a monumental mistake in my life, and my life is full of monumental mistakes, he forgives them, he clears them, and he gives me a new relationship with God. Which means now for me, uh, I'm a boss of this floor. It means now for me, I do my best to absorb other people's mistakes. Now, yes, I lost a lot of capital, a lot of relational trust capital with my bosses upstairs, but they can't get rid of me that easily. They can get rid of you, it doesn't matter to them. But they can't get rid of me, but I wanted to absorb that for you. And so I told them it was my fault. And she said, where do you go to church? Can you imagine if we worked out our salvation with fear and trembling like that and then related to people like that, how much we would shine differently in our region of Bendigo and beyond? Can you imagine... You can't write an evangelistic course like that. This is just the gospel. Actually, it's a life-changing moment. And if we work out that and grasp onto that and get that, well, we would just do less than just grumble. We would shine as lights in the dark sky. God's Old Testament people grumbled their way out of salvation. That was how they worked it out. May that not be us. Let us grasp onto the grace given to us in Christ. And so share in that family likeness of being children of God like Jesus. Because when you think about Jesus, when you look to Jesus, like Kimberly Bell looked to the light plane and thought of Robert Cook, when you think of Jesus, think of this. Jesus does all things without grumbling. Do you know that? Do you know Jesus doesn't look at you and your failures today and tomorrow and go, Oh, he doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't go, I'm just done with this. I'm done with this person. I'm done with this people. Jesus doesn't do that. He comes towards you out of love. Jesus is blameless and innocent when I'm not. He's the original child of God. I don't deserve that inheritance, but he gives it to you. And he's the one who says now, You can also share in the family likeness. Come and be a child of God today. For us as a church, I think it means two things to finish with before we pray. Paul writes here, we see in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. You might be wondering, okay, this is great for today, but how do I keep working out my salvation with that kind of fear and trembling? Well, Paul's got a great tip. Keep reading it, friends. Life is so busy and full, it fills my head with all sorts of stuff. I'm on the social media channels. I get preached at constantly how I'm not good enough, what I need to do to be like others, compare myself, whatever it is. Now, I don't get off social media. I think it's got some good things about it, but you know what I need most of all? that sits in my head throughout the day is to remember my salvation. Read it and have joy. Pour over it. Read how God loves you and comes towards you in Christ. And the second little thing is, in doing so, as Paul finishes, you'll rejoice. Isn't it a strange thing he says, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, verse 17 and 18, Paul is saying, I'm about to die. And not just die in a nursing home blissfully in my sleep, as they give me some medication to drift off, and there's no pain. Now he's saying, I'm about to die a martyr's death. But I want you to notice in those last two verses, as he explains that, in a Roman prison, career is gone, I'm about to die a martyr's death, he says four times in two verses, I rejoice. Hold fast to the word, rejoice, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God works. Let's thank God that he does in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, for some of us, we perhaps have lost our joy. It might be we've experienced that drift of faith, we've had a faith drift, we Perhaps we've been trying to work for our salvation. We, like your people in the Old Testament, we've tried to find meaning in other things. We've lived for other gods, other idols, other things our heart sets their affections upon. Father, thank you we have forgiveness. We have new relationship. We have this new humanity as the church. And now help us to hold on to Jesus knowing that as we drifted, he came towards us, knowing that he's always holding on to us, that he's working it out in and through us. Father, we pray that we would, now with that faithful fear and that trembling of trust, live lives that are changed, changed by Jesus, that we would worship him, trust him,